This week's podcast partner is Nuffield Australia. Applications for the 2025 program close on Friday the 31st of May. It's only a couple of weeks away. If you're looking to select a research topic that will be of use to you, your business, community and industry, and join a global alumni of more than 2,000 people while travelling the world to research that topic, apply for a Nuffield scholarship. Find out more at nuffield.com.au. The NT is like the never-never because you either never, ever leave, you leave and you never, ever want to go back. Or if you do leave, it'll never, ever leave you. And um, I, I sort of know that I'll either never leave or it'll never leave me. G'day and welcome to episode 71 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and I just wanted to start off by saying thank you to anyone who's listened to one episode or if you're a regular listener. Last week we hit 50,000 downloads, which is just truly incredible. Um, I, I feel fortunate to have had so many awesome and inspiring people on the podcast, and I hope you have some takeaways from the combos. Before this episode today, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the lands on which I'm presenting on today and have for quite a few months now. Pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'd like to acknowledge the First Nations people and the first communities from wherever it is that you're tuning into the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Off the back of that, I'm really excited to welcome our next guest. Olivia Borden, in her own words, is just a humble Mallee girl. But she's a dreamer and a chaser of those dreams. And her story is truly extraordinary. From her childhood on the family pig farm, living in swags in a house with no electricity and cooking over an open fire, from dropping out of high school to then finding a love of learning, shearing sheep in outback wool stations and then discovering the north, this story will have you along and encapsulated for the ride. There really is something in it for everyone. I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, LAWD, specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. To find out more, head over to lawd.com.au. I want to ask you, because you say you've got imposter syndrome and like you're hesitant to jump in and talk about yourself or whatever it might be, but you grew up on a farm, so (laughs) you've got no right to be live. (laughs) (laughs) oh that's very lovely thanks (laughs) (laughs) yeah but but I guess the funny thing is like I grew up on a small farm um in the Wimmera Mallee just right on the border there and um we had a piggery and we didn't have we had sort of a fair bit of cropping back in the day but as the drought kicked in really bad I sort of grew up my younger years were about 10 years of drought and we sold off a lot of land and then my dad split the farm from his parents like they separated it and then it got smaller again um so I guess I come from fairly humble beginnings um but I tell you what there's one thing about growing up on a pig farm and that is you learn how to work from a very young age (laughs) so what did a childhood look like on a pig farm was it free range was it in in stalls what did it look like it was a bit of both actually um so I was actually born at home on the farm, um, so you can't get much more wow. agriculture than that, I guess. <laughs> I'm one of five kids. We're all 21 months apart, and um, 
and I guess mum had already given birth to two kids, so she was like, oh, you know, I'll be right, I'll, I've got this. And um, and when she went, fell into labour with me, she um, she rang dad up, who was at the neighbours working on the motorbikes over there, having a few beers, and was like, oh, I'm going to labour. And um, so dad, you know, rides the motorbike home and, and uh, comes in, and he's like, oh, you've still got ages to go. So he lays down and has a sleep. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, old mother hand, yeah, woke him up and said, "No, this baby's coming now." And um, and then yeah, I was born into dad's dad's arms, and I guess um, that's probably why we've had such a connection the whole way through. But so going, going back to your question, we had um, we had an indoor pickery, um, but uh, we also had an outdoor pickery. So when I was little, I think I might have been sort of like mid primary school age. We started up this outdoor pickery, and um, and that was on the other side of town to where um, our house was. So when we were at this outdoor piggery, we lived in this um, mud brick house. So it was this old mud brick house that was, you know, from years and years ago had been built and the whole roof had caved in. So we, I remember when we first moved out there and started putting up electric fencing and moving pigs outdoors, um, our job was dad gave all of us five kids a shovel each and we had to shovel this roof out of this house and it all caved in. <laughs> and uh, it, took, it took us the whole day. It was ridiculous. And then um, dad got up and put a heap of corrugated iron up as the, as the roof and um, we had no power and we had um, a fireplace. So mum used to cook for us five kids and dad um, over this open fireplace um, way back in the day. And um, yeah, so we lived in pretty well swags from then. And even though we had our beautiful brick home on the other side of town and uh, I guess when we'd be out in this other farm for months at a time, uh, that's probably what. You like now when you look back, you can see that that's how I've ended up in the life that I have now. You know, you, I've, I remember that was the most joyful time in my childhood and um, and now I still love nothing more than cooking over the fire and sleeping in swags and I guess in some ways you call doing it tough but I think it's just, it's raw and organic and um, it's just, yeah, the most enjoyable thing in the world being out of reception and um, not having electricity and having to boil the donkey to... Um, you know, get hot water to have a shower at night and uh, way back then that was cultivated into my heart and I loved it and, um, you know, 29 years later I'm still <laughs> still chasing that lifestyle, I guess. Well, that's honestly incredible. What was your relationship like with your siblings? Um, well, I guess you learn survival instincts pretty quick when you grow up with five kids. Like if you make Vegemite on toast and turn your back for a second, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we were close. We fought and carried on, and we loved each other to bits too. So um, yeah, it was it was pretty good. We we had a pretty um wild childhood in a sense. I remember learning to shoot air rifle when I was about six years old, um, and then we got little motorbikes that just got into bigger motorbikes. Um, I remember Dad used to mono the motorbike when we were little and we'd sit on the tank and you'd hold on by Dad's monoing the motorbike down the track and then soon enough my older brother learnt how to mono so he'd be monoing and he'd have one of like, you know, he'd have me on the back and, and our little sister on the front would be monoing down the paddock. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in our family we, um, we got our first farm bomb which is like an old car that's unregistered when we were nine years old. 
and um, we used to have this racing track not too far from the house. And I remember my brother used to drive around the racing track too fast and Dad was a bit worried that someone would get hurt. So what he did was he took the driver's side door off so that if it went around the track too fast, he'd get too scared because like, he'd fall out. So that was Dad's way of being of like, that was his OH&S to make sure that we didn't drive like hooligans and just take the doors off the car. <laughs> just make you feel a little bit unsafe and then you, you change your actions. So, yeah. so tell me where growing up as a bit of a wild child, a free child I guess is the better way to put it, with yeah, just as part of the farm and the environment and with your family. Like it's just – it's an absolutely incredible childhood. Was – did you want to be – a farmer? What did you want to be as a kid? Oh, absolutely. I wanted to be a farmer. Um, the pig industry went through some hard times when I was sort of just after that free-range piggery stage. Um, the price of pigs must have fallen out. There was a few political things that sort of was the cause of that and um, a lot of the piggeries were getting bigger um, and they were becoming more corporatized and a lot of the family farms were selling out pigs and must have been doing it tough and I have no idea why, but we ended up going contract harvesting. Um, and so dad was part, it was back when headers were smaller, right? So instead of there being like two or three headers and part of a contract harvesting crew, this is when there was like 12 headers. And, um, and mum packed all of us five kids up in the bus and we followed the headers all the way. So we started contracting Queensland because that's the first wheat and barley to sort of come in. And then as the season went south, we followed it the whole way down to Victoria. And um, part of this harvesting crew, they had a chaser bin driver, obviously. And this poor chaser bin driver would just have, like, he would be so busy um, because all the headers would be calling him up and they'd be like, I'm full, I'm full. And this poor little guy on the track would just be racing across the paddock. And I remember thinking, wow, that's like so adrenaline rushing and this, and, and you get to help so many people. So um, people would ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd be like, a chaser bin driver. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So over the, <laughs> over the course of the years, people, um, I sort of went between I want to run the family farm to being a chaser bin driver. Little did I know at the time, it would probably achieve both. And you mentioned when we chatted a couple of weeks ago <laughs> that there was a pretty pivotal moment for you. You were reading an Outback magazine on the back of the school bus or something Similar to that, that your grandma had given you, and there was it lit a spark in the opportunity of what there was in ag. Yeah, absolutely. I guess when I grew up um, as a teenager, social media was just starting to come about, um, but it wasn't big. You know, it wasn't like not everyone had Facebook, and it certainly wasn't what it is today with Instagram. And I think it'd be very different for kids growing up now because they probably can just look at their phones and whatever they're interested in, whether it's sports or ag or, you know, travelling overseas, they can follow all these pages and um, didn't really have that growing up. So I guess my my outlet was I'd read this Outback magazine that had pretty amazing stories of um, different people and different stations and different places that I'd never seen before and the photos are incredible. I love I'm – I'm a sucker for a good ag photo. <laughs> <laughs> And I love poetry too. And I used to flick back to the, you know, um, towards the end of the magazine and look at the, uh, like read all the, the bush poems. But also what I love the most about that magazine was the very back of it, which had all of the ads. 
um, for different station positions. And um, you know, I had a, uh, like I'm not taking away. I had an amazing younger childhood where you know it was mum and dad and the kids, and it was sport on Saturdays and church on Sundays. But as the drought kicked in and as life started to, you know, I guess the real life started to kick in, um, things fell apart. You know, the farm fell apart, and mum and dad's marriage fell apart, and um, you know, like a lot of rural families, mental health becomes a big thing. Um, that impacted our lives heavily, heavily, and um, and things at home weren't so good, and so and I also I I guess I wasn't sort of the kind of academic kid that was made for school. Um, you know, we'd sit there and I'd I'd be in class with all of my beautiful girlfriends, and um, you know they were really good at school, and and they. You know, they'd go home to their beautiful little bedrooms and do their homework and they had did sport after school and things like that. But um, when I was a teenager and I didn't sort of have that, I'd get home and I'd be straight out working on the farm and um, cooking tea and, you know, sort of gave up sports. And um, I guess as what the Outback magazine did to me was it was um, it helped me to dream and I sort of realised, you know, I think there's more to life than this small community. Is that where... Is that where the idea of running away, like in your your mid-teens, came from or was there a moment that um, spurred that on? I guess it wasn't a particular moment. Like I said, like things got, got really quite tough um, in at home and I guess you end up going into survival mode a little bit. And I guess when I was about... 15 or 16 you know I was quite a capable young person in the sense of like you know capable at farm work and obviously could drive and things like that and um I I guess I wanted that sense of independence and I'd have wanted there was sort of part of me that wanted to shake all the responsibilities from home away um I wanted to you know just get out there and be free and um and I wanted to just start a different life far away from everything that I'd ever known but the other hand I had this huge um I've got this ridiculously loyal bone in my body (laughs) 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 that I can't shake and I I had the responsibility um of looking after dad and the farm and um and that comes first and um so what so as I got through like in my older high school years I sort of went to school less and less and um, I just went there for English, math and agriculture. It wasn't much of an ad course, but there was a little bit of an ad course there. So I started doing a bit of that and I was working on family farm two days a week and then I ended up working on the farm full time. I dropped out of high school, but I wanted a little bit of social life. Like I didn't want to just be home on the farm um, and and be too disconnected from other people my age. And I was so blessed that only an hour down the road was uh, Long Renong Ag College. And so I enrolled in that for just a couple of days a week. So I could – I didn't really enroll for the, for the ag kind of content. I just enrolled <laughs> so I could meet other farmers. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so I did that for a year while I was working heavily on the farm, Um because we'd got back into pigs full swing at that stage. Um, so it was just Dad and I. I'm not even sure if we had a worker. Yeah, I don't even know if we had um, 
had anyone really helping us in those early days. We must have had a few few come and go. But um, anyway, as I went to ag college, I actually really got into it. I really enjoyed the study and I enjoyed the social life. And then I sort of bargained with dad and um, I ended up going there full time um, for the next two years after that. But I still took whatever subjects weren't essential, I would take off and I'd go home and mix feed for dad. And um, I'd still do pig loading on Monday and, and work weekends and things like that. So I wasn't removed from the farm, but I just um, ended up diving into studies more, um, which is quite funny because uh, as part of ag college, obviously you have to study agronomy. And I grew up with stock, so I wasn't interested in agronomy at all. And <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm so thankful that um, one of the teachers there took an interest and said, Liv, like, you really should study agronomy. You know, it's not many more subjects on top of what you're already doing to, um, to get your agronomy certificate. And um, I went into a class and I was feeling a little bit nervous because I didn't know a lot about cropping. And um, and you know what? The ironic thing is it become my favourite subject because you sit in agronomy and it would be a full-on debate and you'd have one person on one side of the room yelling at the other person on the other side of the room, yelling at the teacher that this isn't right and the teacher's yelling back. And it was hilarious because everyone was so passionate about cropping in that area. And so the things that I thought that I would really love, like animal nutrition, um, you know, they become the boring subject. And I used <laughs> to look forward to going into agronomy. <laughs> This week's podcast sponsor are our friends over at Boarding Schools Expo. Amanda and her team for more than 20 years have been bringing boarding schools closer to the places that people call home. Over 15,000 children have met their future boarding school at one of their events. At the end of June, they're hosting an event in Wagga. So if you're keen or know someone who might, head to their website, boardingexpo.com.au to find out more. Light a few spot fires and then... Sit back and watch people run. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It wasn't a boring class at all. <laughs> I want to. So, so you went back and you're working on the family farm, but then you mm-hmm. got a bit of a, a traveller lifestyle about you. You went working in shearing sheds and started to head across the countryside, didn't you? So, what was the yeah, instigator to move so away from from the family farm? When I was in. I guess, you know, it's interesting. You know how you were talking about the ag, um, the, sorry, the Outback magazine and I used to sit there and read that on the school bus, you know, like I was a bit of a dreamer and that's how I sort of escaped my days in the classroom. I'd sit there dreaming about going north and dreaming about doing all this different farm work. It was the same when I was at ag college, even though I wasn't very academic. I didn't do very well in high school. I did quite well. I got pretty good marks in ag college because I was interested in it. But there was still part of me that just wasn't made for the classroom. So at lunchtime, if or whenever we were in the library, I'd pick up the newspaper this time and I'd still read the same old job advertisements and uh, I started to get a real hunger. And if anyone who I was at ag college with had been up north or had um, you know, had some connection to a station, I'd ask them all about it and um and hold on to their every word. And when I was um Part of being at our college, we had it was compulsory. We had to learn how to shear, and um, I'd never really been around shearing sheds too much because we grew up in pig farms instead of sheep. Um, I'd moved a few mobs of sheep and things like that for my for my pops, but I'd never had too much to do with the shearing shed. And um, 
I reckon I was the last person to learn where every single bloke goes on the sheep. But there's something incredible about um, just peeling wool off. I really enjoyed it. I guess I enjoy like an athletic challenge and shearing is, um, you know, it's quite physical work. But uh, there's something just mesmerizing about just rolling your wrist around and that wool peeling off. And we had a competition at the end of the week and I won the, you know, cert four shearing comp. How good. (laughs) My claim to fame. Absolutely. (laughs) Probably the only thing I've ever won in my life. (laughs) And the Um, most important though, so. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and so – by that stage, the piggery had built itself back up and dad was getting remarried. So I felt like there was going to be someone there to sort of look after him and um, he wasn't going to be too lonely. And um, I'd definitely by that stage outgrown sort of the small community that I was born into and I was hungry to go. So um, when I graduated, you know, it was, it was like the day after my 21st birthday, um, my friend had given me a shearing singlet. And it was this beautiful pig shearing thing that had dead shearing on it and it had a phone number on it. And I thought, I remember coming in from mixing feed one day and just giving the guy a phone call. And he's like, oh, why did you wait till Monday to call me? You should have called me yesterday. And he's like, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, can I start tomorrow? <laughs> so I asked Dad and through my surprise, he said, yeah, go for it, Liz. So I packed up my little 98 model Hilux. <laughs> with the swag and my hunting dog and um, had no idea what I was in for. And I drove all the way up to Bell Reynolds and I met the shearing contractor who was had something else on. So he gave me this mud map of where to go, which was all the way up near Ivanhoe, which is, I think it was you know, another hour and a half past Bell Reynolds. But once you get past Bell Reynolds, that's sort of outback bush country and um, thank goodness when I was getting close and I was on the dirt roads so I was taking this turn that turn I wasn't sure about one turn and the farmer was there and he directed me into the shearing shed <laughs> and by this stage it's night and I turn up to this shearing hut which is very much like the free range piggery you know there was um, you know no hot water and um, like you have to boil a fire to get the water hot and, and it was real old school um, the type of old wooden shearing quarters that the wind comes through and, um, you know, there's a draft, steady draft under the doors. And uh, I just shook hands with everyone. There was another um, couple of female Rousies there and I got put in the room with one of them. And um, one of the learner shearers was knocking up really bad because it is painful uh, being a learner shearer. And so what happened was the very next day I did, um, one run of rousing, which I'd never rousted before, so that was a lot to take in. And then the <laughs> next run, I'd be on shearing. But the thing about shearing in the backcountry is these aren't beautiful sheep from the Wimmeramalli that you know are quite creamy. These are like ginormous prickle bushes that are so strong. And by the end of the first run, there was like I had no skin left on my forearms. So just prickles and blood dripping down your hands. <laughs> And it was it was so hard. It was so hot, and because it was still yeah, properly summer then, um, and that was welcome to the world of shearing and rouseabouting. So um, because I love the challenge, I completely fell in love with that lifestyle, and um, I was out there in the backcountry for uh, a year, entire year, and um, I could have just stayed out there forever. Really, I still sometimes still dream about those beautiful sunrises out there. 
um, in the Balrenal backcountry. It's the most special place. <laughs> and were you on the hand pace for that whole time or did you mix it up a bit? No, I, a lot of the time I was just routing. Um, yeah. But whenever you go crutching, um, obviously you don't need as many routes. So I'd always get on crutching. And I'd try and my shearing contractor, he wasn't on the handpiece much, but sometimes he'd jump on crutching as well. And I think, all right, if I can just keep up with him. And I remember one particular shed I got put beside the gun shearer. And because his hands just move so fast and you end up sort of just watching him out of the corner of your eye, I remember that was the like the shed that I actually started getting pretty good at crutching. Not pretty good, but I could sort of keep up with the lower half of the crew, I guess. And um, I remember waking up at night time and my whole arms had cramped and I couldn't move them at all. They were just like, they were literally just locked straight. And I was in excruciating pain. I just had tears coming out of my eyes and I got up and I opened the door and I was just walking around like the sheds at night and I was just in the most agony. <laughs> but one of the most sort of painful things I'd ever been through. But I... um Next morning, I was right and I was back on the hand piece. And <laughs> it. it was definitely um, character building. But um, I remember the first time I saw uh, my 100 was we were at a – I'd been rousing in the lead up to it and I'd been getting on um, at like Smoko and lunchtime and shearing two sheep, um, probably much to the poor shearer's disgust who would have probably liked it to be quiet and no one shearing sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Close their eyes and relax for a bit. Yeah. There was one young guy, um, Lenny, and he was a really clean shearer. And I was so thankful that he sort of took the time to show me a few things about shearing. And then I started realizing, oh, I can do a sheep in under five minutes. And um, I was leaving to go up north. And um, I knew I didn't have long to sort of shear my first hundred. And in the lead up to it, my wrist was getting, um, like it was really, really swollen. Um, and I remember going and getting it checked out on a Saturday and the guy's like, Liv, like, it's not your wrist, like your whole shoulders move forward. It's like out of place and that's why your wrist is swollen. And they said, there's no way that you're going to be able to shear. Um, but this guy, like the shearing, that's what the shearer said, but this guy, he, he really believed in me. So he put my shoulder back in and he, um, you know, did Cairo and, um, um, you know, massage and needling and all that sort of stuff. And the very next week it was, it was coming pretty good. And I begged my boss to get on a stand because I really wanted to prove myself. We're at a uh, shearing shed called Claire, uh, which is just south of Ivanhoe. And it's an eight stand shearing shed. And, um, and my boss was like, no, Liv, you're not, you're routing. And I was so lucky that, um, that shearer Lenny, he did his back, which is not lucky for him, but <laughs> lucky for me because he just got up and said, Liz, you're shearing, I'm rousing. And so I jumped on the handpiece that day and um, I had my own handpiece at that stage and it was running really hot in the first couple of runs, and um, which means like when it's running hot, you, your hands start to blister. And by the second run, my hands were so blistered. I can show you a photo. I've got one. Yeah. That's so they were true. bleeding. 
And um, and what had happened was the timing had been thrown out underneath my handpiece. There's like a, a cog that is the whole timing of your handpiece and there's no way you can fix it. And I was so lucky that uh, Lenny's brother was shearing beside me and he lent me his um, handpiece. And once I got onto that good handpiece, I just found it so much easier. I found it easy to go down the legs and clean up the really sticky bits and, um, and things went smoother. So I was just making sure I was getting 25, 26 a run. And the last run, I clocked over to my first 100 um, Merino U's at about a quarter past five. And um, the shed was like so impressed. They're like, well, you better do one more just in case you miscounted. So I did 101 and um, we all knocked off early. And um, yeah, and that was it. Talk me through that moment at like in the shed, the camaraderie amongst the team when you hit that 100. What was it like? <sighs> it was. It, you know, it wasn't like a big uproar or anything like that. Just the gun shearer, I didn't realise he was shearing beside me and he'd been looking at my tally. And so when I clicked 101, like he um, he just turned his handpiece off and, yeah, took his moccasins off and, um, yeah, and that was it. Um, the, everyone ended up turning their, their handpieces off and I didn't realise that that meant that it was, um, that was it. We were done, and um, some of the oldest years that I really, you know, adored and looked up to, they come past. And um, Goza, he's my favourite little shear. He's this tiny, tiny guy who can shear rams like an absolute boss, and um, and he doesn't drink alcohol. He only drinks cups of tea. And we had um, a bit of a bond because I love drinking cups of tea too. And he took a photo of me, so I have that photo there with, with my hundred and once <laughs> you. Um, and yeah, and then we all drank a Melbourne long necks, I'm pretty sure, to celebrate. <laughs> wow, the, the tick of approval. So you, you headed north, but I th- there, there was an interesting part. Um, you went to go visit some friends up up north originally, didn't you? And that's where like it was it was fairly eye-opening um, in terms of yeah, heading out to Port Keys. While I was shearing oh, and rouseabouting um i remember seeing on youtube a video i guess facebook probably was bigger than it might be facebook but it it was a, a video of these boys um that had played footy in a small town close to mine so i sort of knew of them but i didn't know them directly and they were up in the territory and they had you know this whole few minute video of fishing and pig hunting and it just looked incredible and I thought oh my gosh I want to do that and then one of my mates that did move ended up I oh, sorry yeah that I did know he ended up moving up here and he went out to the same um, community where these boys were and he invited me up to come and visit and so I'd never been to the Northern Territory before the I'd, it's funny when you grow up in Victoria, you never think about the Northern Territory, you never think about WA, like they're just cut off. Yeah. <laughs> and when you think about heading north, you only think of Queensland. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I got on the plane and flew up to Darwin and then I had to go out of the airport and the heat just hits you straight away, you know, from cold, <laughs> cold, um, you know, lower outback New South Wales to the warm tropics of Darwin. Um and then I yeah, walked over to this little sort of hangar, I guess, where the small planes leave from and the Aboriginals started walking out of the bush, literally out of the log grass and um, started talking in language, which, you know, I couldn't understand. And 
Um, I was like, wow, this is incredible. And I didn't know what to do with myself. I was the only white person there. So I just sat down with the little kids and started playing with them on the curb and started the street. And, um, and then, yes, yeah, soon enough, we boarded the plane and we flew out to this community and it was like nothing I'd ever seen. You know, landed there and, um, and my mate was like, quick, like you got to grab your bags quick before, you know, they get stolen. Um, because a lot of, um, bags were getting flogged to the airport at that stage. Um, and then, yeah, we jumped in this troopy and, um, away we went through town. And I remember just being so shocked at kind of what looked like to me then, I guess, poverty. Like it was these huge, big tennis court sized fences with barbed wire around the top of them. Um, you know, the dirt is just the reddest dirt that you've ever seen. And, um, a lot of really skinny, you know, I guess I don't want to be like racist or anything, but malnourished children and um, and a lot of malnourished dogs running around. And uh, you know now I'm used to seeing those sights all the time. It's nothing, but um, it was a real shock being a little Victorian and, and coming up. And I thought, wow, like I didn't know places like that existed. I thought I've really hit Africa here. Um, this is this is not Australia that I know. And um, it was such an eye opener. Um, and then I guess how you would think of Port Keats, without being rough, I love Port Keats, don't get me wrong, but probably up to that point it was the closest thing that I'd ever seen to hell. And then you get out, uh, like literally where I was staying, someone had been murdered um, a couple nights before out in the street, out the front, like just to sort of put things in context of what it's like. They, um, they don't really run in tribes out there, they're running gangs and um, there's a lot of sort of, you know, yeah, a lot of riffraff out there, I guess. And um, anyway, the next day we jumped on the boat and we headed out to sea and uh, I got to go and catch my first anti-barra in the Moyle River and that is the closest thing I have ever seen to heaven. The bush land out there is just absolutely incredible. The water's stunning. It's just, it was a bush like I'd never seen before and it gets into you, um, really got into my bones and, you know, they say... Um, I don't know if you've ever read We of the Never Never, but um, it was written way back in the early 1900s. And they say there, um, you know, it's called, like, the NT is like the Never Never because you either never, ever leave, you leave and you never, ever want to go back. Or if you do leave, it'll never, ever leave you. And um, I, I sort of know that I'll either never leave or it'll never leave me because when I went back, I was like, I'm definitely heading back up to the territory the next chance I get. <laughs> and in that time, my mum, she's an incredible lady herself, and she'd gone back nursing after she finished farming, and um, and she wanted to move to the NT. And when I heard she was moving to Tennant Creek, I was like, Deb, no way, you don't want to move to Tennant Creek. It's rough there, you know, people get murdered there. and. A lot of really bad things happen um, and she was adamant. She's like, no, I'm going to move to Tennant Creek. So I was like, well, I'm not going to let you go on your own. So I packed her up and I drove up with her and settled her <laughs> into Tennant Creek. So I ended up going to the Territory twice in, in that year and so it must have been meant to be. So when I said I was going to finish up rousing, my boss was, uh, he was pretty annoyed and he offered me more money and he offered me pretty good offer to stay. But um, I knew that if I did stay, I'd probably end up you know, getting married and, and settling into the netball and the beautiful community that Bal Reynold is. It's, it's an awesome, very, very special little town, Bal Reynold, and the backcountry is just so spectacular. And I knew I really deeply loved it. And if I didn't go, I was definitely going to settle. So um, 
yeah, it was a bit hard, but I bit the bullet. And uh, one of my best friends said that she'd come for the um, come for the trip up. So we jumped in my little Hilux again. <laughs> Seen a few things, hasn't it? Yeah, it has used a lot of diesel. By the end, <laughs> before I gave up on that Hilux, it was using more oil than what it was diesel. Um, <laughs> but she did get me up here uh, and lasted a few years in the territory. And yeah, so we drove up and I got a job and um, and that was it. No more southern life. I've been really back since, a few little holidays. But um, yeah, that was it. Goodbye, southern farming and southern station life. <laughs> and it, it was a fair contrast. I- we might um, gloss over a couple of things here, but so you went and and was you were working on a cattle station, and that then led you into contracting and, and chasing cattle. And you'd mentioned that, yeah, it was just you and the team, and you'd sit around the fire at night. There was no connection to the outside world. You've always been fairly independent, haven't you? Yeah, I guess I have been quite independent. I think. Have you Have you ever worried? about, yeah, I guess, what the rest of the world thinks. And I guess this is circling back to that imposter syndrome piece, but, like, you've, you've been independent, you've chased your dream dreams, and um, you've seen a lot of things which so many other people haven't. Have you, has it just been an adventure or have you, have you worried that you're not following the normal path? Hmm, fantastic question. I guess both. One has been an adventure. And two, when I did step out of station life, I realised that I'd missed out on a lot. I I realised that it had set me back. When I was towards the end of my time out bush in the Territory, you know, I'd been on a cattle station. There was three Aboriginals, my partner and um, the bosses. And it was just us for a long, long time. And we didn't have much Wi-Fi. Um, And I realised when I got back into town, I'd get really exhausted having conversations because I was so used to just talking to those select few people for, you know, months and months at a time. And um, I realised I'd missed out on a lot in terms of um, development, especially business development. Um, And so then when I stepped into my role as an agro, even simple things like, uh, (laughs) I know it sounds crazy, but even XL, Zoom and things like that, just... um, it was hard to get my head around and get back up to scratch because, um, yeah, I guess in the way you've been living like you were 30 years behind for quite a lot of years. Um, and even now I've just had a whole month off social media because um, I guess social media is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> That's can... one of the benefits of living out bush. You don't have to worry about what everyone else is up to, I guess. Turn it off, or yeah, just just drive far enough that the reception drops out. You don't have to go too far <laughs> for that to happen. Yeah. And traversing the territory, so you, you've really tried a few different things up there, from the cattle industry to, as you just mentioned, in in the agronomy world. Um, yeah. What what has it? Or yeah, I guess what what fueled the interest? What what led to stepping out from the contracting life and and stepping into agronomy? It's, it's, I kind of fell into it in a way. Yeah. And then, and then that's not also correct. Um, so I worked in the export yards and then I got out onto like a company-owned station, which wasn't what I was chasing. You know, I, I, like 
it, it definitely gave me a lot of skills, which were good, but it wasn't quite the lifestyle that I was chasing and I was a little bit lost. And, and the thing about moving around is you can get lost and kind of once you step into different cultures and just out of the norm, you can forget who you are or, or sort of lose track of who you are. And I remember I was going through one of those stages where I wasn't really sure who I am, what I was doing, where I was going, and I'd want to come up north and work on stations, and I'd kind of done that, and I wasn't sure where to go from here, and I knew I hadn't really got the experience I wanted. And um, Anyway, long story short, I ended up in Catherine, and I went for the wet season, and I went and put my resume in at Landmark and Elders and um, – and this place called E.E. Muir's. And um, before I got home, Muir's called me up and said, uh, are you right to start tomorrow? And I said, yeah, okay, no worries. And um, I started there in agribusiness. That was my first intro into agribusiness. So I was just selling chemical and fertilizer and doing admin. And the great thing is my boss there, he was like, we, we don't have roles here. We just do each other's roles. So you got to learn the whole lock, stock and barrel of transport and logistics and um all of the ins and outs of ordering it is quite interesting seeing the other side <laughs> sitting on the other side of the desk yeah. but I, I did that for two years and um I guess it's, it's funny like when I was in the export yard I'd be looking at all these cattle coming through and I'd be wondering where they come from and you hear all these stories of different stations and things like that and it was very much the same when I was in agribusiness you'd be ordering tape and plastic and you'd be like well I wonder, like, how these watermelons are grown. <laughs> and um, I'd be, and I'd hear all these names of different farms, and, and you'd be thinking, oh, like, they grow mangoes and they grow watermelons and they grow tropical pasture, and I wonder what they look like. And um, after two years in the office, um, it took me about two years to get good at my job. I can't pay I was a natural at it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but I ended up getting the hang of it. And But my partner at the time, he was keen to go out bush. And I knew that I hadn't done what I'd set out to achieve. So we ended up going out um, bull catching uh, out near Boralula, which is which was the answer to absolutely everything I'd wanted to. You know, that's when I really got to learn. I got to see the real territory. Um, and we did that for quite a few years, which was extremely character building. Um, and I got to see the most incredible sights in the world. Um, and in between that, I'd still come back to Miller's, um, and help out over the wet season. So my branch manager, he'd go away for Christmas and I'd just go and caretake his house for him, um, and, and look after the shop. And so, when all was said and done um, and, you know, quite a few things happened and suddenly my life just pivoted in a completely different direction to what I ever thought it was going to, um, my my bosses there at Muir's, you know, they always kept in contact with me and I come back into the wet season like always to uh, help them out and this time um, my boss that's a head agronomist, he said, you're not going back out, Liv, I, I think you should become an agronomist. And I said no way, Matt, like I'm not smart enough to be an agronomist. And he said, I think you're underselling yourself, Liv. And I argued with him for about three months. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he always gets what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> so he ended up winning me over. He ended up chucking me in the car. And we went out to uh, Tipperary Station. And you could really feel that there was something really big happening in the Northern Territory. We are at that pivotal turning moment where we're really going to develop uh, northern agriculture and um, 
cotton was going to be a major part of that. And I guess being from Broadacre background, cotton was quite interesting. And um, and it sort of really brought me back to those longy days when we were sitting in the um, agronomy classroom and, and the boys are fighting with each other and uh, and, and the passion is just absolutely um, flowing. And, and it's exactly the same paddock up here even to this day. So it took me about five minutes to fall in love with cotton. And... <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm absolutely obsessed. I, I work all day with it and then I come home and then I read about it all night. <laughs> Which is just, it's an incredible way, like, I guess, when you're, you're providing services to your, your customers as well or your clients. Like if you've got someone with that level of passion, like, yeah, how can you not win when someone is, it, it, it's not just a passion, it's an obsession, um, which is just extraordinary. What, what matters more than how much you know or how much you don't know, whether you're a female or a male or how old or young you are, is how much you care. You know, your influence is determined by how much you, abund- like abundantly, you place other people's interests first. Um, because if you truly care, you're going to go that extra mile, you know. And these farmers up here, they've, um, they're great people. They've got good morals, they've got humble businesses and, um, you know, they've got this drive for innovation and, like, why wouldn't you want to work around the clock for them? So, you know, they can call me up at 6 a.m. on Saturday and say I need a drum mechanical and I'll be happy to run a 200K up the road because you want to see them do well. And there's a lot of unsolved sort of things in the agronomy up here that we're still working out and, um, and you know, they're, they're problems that um, you just, work on day and night and you ring every cotton agronomist in in Australia and out of Australia <laughs> trying to find out what these you know what the solutions to these things are um, because you care about it yeah the most valuable gift you have to offer is yourself and um, I know that I don't have a bachelor in ag science and um, you know there's a few probably holes in my education but I'm doing a traineeship at the moment as a agronomist um, I'm going to go on and study the cotton course, which Brendan Griff teaches, who's incredible. And the person who wrote the cotton course is Steve Buster, and he's an amazing man in himself, just absolutely incredible. He he's worked. Um, he grew up in Burke on a cotton farm, which um, I love Burke because that's where we did a lot of contract harvesting when we were young. And he's worked all over Australia, and he retired, but he got bored. Um, very quickly within a few months and then he got the offer to come up and work in Kununurra on cotton so so he stays up over in Kunners and um, and he's just a wealth of knowledge and so is Griff who's currently teaching the cotton course so I love being able to call those men up um, and be like you know I'm in the NT and you guys haven't worked in the NT but this is what I'm seeing what are you thinking I guess the um, the biggest difference between agronomy and and farm work and station life is and and it's not it wouldn't be the same for everyone, but just personally for my story is when I got into this position, people believed in me. I wouldn't be an agronomist if my boss hadn't believed in me, and not just my agronomy boss, but my branch manager. You know, they had faith in me to see, and and that's when I really started to thrive. Um, yeah, whereas I think out on the cattle stations. Uh, and a lot of people would go through through this. You, you can be nothing. You can be a number, and you can get treated pretty disrespectfully. And um, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It's definitely character building. Um, but it can be too much. And um, I wouldn't recommend anyone who's on a cattle station and, and really getting treated poorly to stay for too long because 
um, when you do, and it's not just cattle stations, could be anywhere in whatever job you're in, but when you do start to get a, a beautiful community of people around you that have great morals and um, have like the drive that you want and have the skills that you want and um, and live the lifestyle and the, and are the type of people that you want to be, that's when you really start to thrive and that's when life really starts to come together for you. So, um, well, that's what I personally found. Yeah, that's that's a special thing about the cotton industry and the agriculture industry in general up here. I feel is just the awesome farmers, the awesome agronomists, everyone in the industry is so supportive, so kind, and um, there's a lot of room to grow. You talked about like this service to others and helping farmers and helping people, and even in the lead up to this episode, you talked about um, if if you can provide that um, that opportunity where someone can see that there is m- so many opportunities in agriculture for them if they throw themselves um, in. In terms yeah. of if if you live your life through just trying to do something for others, how do you get like what what does it give to you and what does it mean to you? I think what it does give to you is it gives you the opportunity to be a part of something that's much bigger than yourself. And I I mean much, much bigger. Like the world's hungry and Australia has the ability to feed a lot of it. You know, there's – and and if you want to think about it, you can think about it from that aspect or you can think about it from an environmental aspect. Like anyone who's – you know, might be a bit of a greenie or is worried about um, what agriculture might be doing to the land, I encourage them to get into agriculture, study it, study environmental science, study agriculture science, you know, become an agronomist. If you want to be in a position of influence about what chemical gets put out in the paddock, become an agronomist. Every single choice you make every day can impact the environment, you know. I, I don't know, does that kind of answer your question in a way? <laughs> It does, and I think it's it's completely personal because, like, I, what you were just saying then about like people—if people are concerned, get involved in agriculture. I think that is probably probably one of the most powerful things I've heard because it is everyone's got a choice, and like there is so much passion around um, food production and food waste and climate and everything, and and let's just say red meat as well, and what people are seeing and and the discussions there. Well. If you really want to be part of the solutions, um, yeah, come and get involved in the industry. It's that's incredible. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think it can be quite hard because some people can think. Uh, I, I know, especially with cotton, and you know, a lot of people think, "Oh, cotton farmers—they just make all this money and they're just hungry for money and things like that." Um, and so, people can see agriculture as businesses, which you have to do because it, they are, like agriculture is a business. <laughs> but making money is not a sole ambition that inspires or motivates generations. You know, it, quality of life and purpose and sustainability and looking after the environment and feeding everyone and clothing everyone. You know, that's a part of being something that's much bigger than money um, and much bigger than yourself. And I think that's what's so cool about the agriculture industry. And, um, you know, I think as a country, um, Australia needs to be adaptive, you know. We've, um, we've got to be open to change and we've got to be proud of who we are and where we've come from and proud of our beautiful, 
beautiful country that we have, but we have to be adaptive to change. We have to work out, right? Like, you know, COVID's a classic one. Um, life is changing really quick and um, like the trade war is huge. And, you know, we've got to work out how can we use our resources the best. And, and the, uh, the other beautiful thing about Australian agriculture industry is we've learnt from our mistakes. Like we do, like not all the time, sometimes we repeat mistakes, but, um, you know, I think, I think we've just got to make sure we don't get too caught up in our ways. Like particularly up here in the Northern Territory, um, there's so much talk about developing the North and um, turning vision into action and things like that. But then there's a huge um, there's a huge blockage to where people don't don't want to change. And I think what what our um, focus on as the ag industry when we're talking about getting other people involved in ag, um, we've got to sort of talk about like the modernness of of our practices you know um people think about cotton and they they think really negative of it you know they think oh it uses all the water and then you take them you know you spray like 14 times with insecticides and things like that but you know it's not the case like the beautiful thing about the modern cotton plant is in the northern territory over 90 percent of the cotton grown up here is dryland cotton you know i doesn't it's just we get over a meter of rain in a lot of the areas we grow cotton so we don't have to irrigate it and there there's a couple of pivots that do irrigate and a small little bit of um, drip tape that grows cotton but it's supplementary rain fed cotton so it's grown towards the end of the wet season so half of the irrigation's already um, done with your natural rain and then you just finish it off so it uses less water than what um, sorghum and and it is about the same as what a watermelon plant does you know um but it's just about sort of um getting that level of education out there to the public how um like i guess have you ever heard like you know how like ripple effects create a tidal wave um and if we want a tidal wave of change and of sustainability as a country um economically and environmentally you know, it starts off with these ripple effects. And I guess why I end up so passionate about the cotton industry is that it is a ripple effect that's going to be huge. Like for our farmers, um, having cotton in the mix provides a good disease and weed break so that it, um, you know, it cleans up a lot of your weeds. But it's a lot um, less risk than other than a lot of other um, crops that I work with because it's got flexible marketing options. Um, but the most beautiful thing about the cotton um, plant up here is the lint is a bit of a byproduct and the seed is what is going to make a massive change because that seed is 22% protein and that seed may open up the opportunity for feedlots. And if we get feedlots, we might actually be able to run a sustainable laboratory. Yeah. <laughs> and if we can run a sustainable laboratory, that is just going to absolutely change the lives of a lot of northern um, beef producers up here. So it's, um, yeah, it's, oh my gosh, it's such an exciting time. So I'm just going to say to everyone, move to the NT, get involved in agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I need to confess that before this one went to air, I listened to it many times and I, I just think there's so many takeaways from it. Liv shows that there truly is, with a dream and a willingness to learn and lean on people asking for help, that you can achieve anything you want to. 
I absolutely love this chat. And after we recorded it, we actually ended up chatting for another hour or so. So I can't wait to hear what your takeaways are from this chat. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and I'll see you next week.